Welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. I'm your host, Chris Fernandez-Packham. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's show, take a minute to leave a review on iTunes and subscribe, or get in touch with me using email at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. On with the show. The show you are about to hear is part two of the Congress of Vienna. It won't make any sense if you don't listen to part one first. I know my shows are normally standalones and can be listened to individually in any order, but for the Congress of Vienna, like Waterloo, it had to be a multi-parter. So please make sure that you've heard part one. Now, before we begin, I'd like to do a little community corner. This show is for all new listeners, and I'm thrilled to have a lovely community like you. I would say a huge thank you for the latest iTunes reviews, starting with one and only Mikey, much appreciated, James Utley, yes, ice cream is amazing, and I was a little blown away about how early ice cream was developed, and in a way how simple it was to make, but also the cleverness involved. Pontifax Podcasts. I'll try and keep it up. Breathing life into the Victorian period is the goal, and I'm glad you think I've got the voice to do this. Thank you. Jim Mark Wright? Well, that's a fantastic review. I'm so glad you like the Christmas Carol episode. A lot of listeners really loved that one. I had a blast researching it and making it, so I'm glad it's been so popular. Judy12345? Thank you, and I'll try to make sure... The human element always shines through. Also, I had a listener from Australia comment on the website that she is from Ballarat, Australia, and her town is famous for a gold rush in the 1850s. I'll be honest, I don't know much about Australian history yet, but just a quick look after her comment made me think, wow, there's so much incredible stuff to look at here. So, Thank you, Nadine. We will be metaphorically visiting your hometown at some point in the show. Oh, and thank you, Rob C., as always, for the interesting chats and some great historical info. Before we get started now, I'd like to play you a quick promo clip for the Pontifax podcast. Most listeners who follow me on Twitter know that I'm always engaged in a daily commute from hell on Britain's collapsing railways. This episode was nearly late because of it. I often need a little pickup, and Pontifact is the perfect way to bring a smile to my face. A funny dive into the life of individual popes. The hosts pitch the show with delightful irreverence, but charming affection for the popes in question. Religious or not, this is a show that will make you laugh and pick up some unknown facts. Give it a listen and follow them on Twitter, as well as me. Thank you. Hi, I'm Fry. And I'm Bree from Pontifax, a papal history podcast. Chris has kindly allowed us to take a moment before the episode to tell you a little bit about our show, where we are ranking the popes from Peter to Francis. 
In each episode, we go over the life, contributions, scandal, appearance, and interesting unknowns of a single pope, and then rank them based on our very serious categories. In the end, our best popes will battle it out to be the popiest pope and take the keys of the pearly gates away from St. Peter. Maybe. So, come check out Pontifax. You can find us on all your favorite podcatching services. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at PontifaxPod. And now, we invite you to enjoy the Age of Victoria podcast. In December 1813, the British Foreign Secretary, Robert Stewart, better known to history as Lord Castlereagh, finally been forced to travel to Europe to cut deals with the European powers to bring about the end of Napoleon. For years, Britain had been seen as a financier and an opportunist, despite having a significant force active in Spain and essentially clearing the seas of French shipping. Now, Britain had to fully commit to the diplomatic war. Metternich had badly wanted the British to get more involved in diplomacy and alliances, so Castlereagh did. He planned on reorganising the former Dutch Republic to suit Britain, and worked to get the Prince Regent's daughter Charlotte married to the son of the exiled ruler, William, Prince of Orange. Then he planned to get the prince recognised as the King of the Netherlands, which would ignore the long-standing Dutch Republican tradition, and also encouraged him to take over Belgium as the French retreated. As Castlereagh said, it looked good on the map. He magnanimously declined the idea that Britain might want to annex Dunkirk for future naval use. With that, Castlereagh moved on to Frankfurt, having a dreadful journey and moaning about the conditions in Germany. He then moved on to meet Metternich. Arriving in Bale, he found that the Tsar had departed, but had left instructions that Castlereagh was to meet him for anyone else. Castlereagh, as a British Foreign Secretary, was not going to take instructions from anyone besides the British government. He decided to see Metternich anyway, and drive a coach and horses through the formal protocols. The stark contrast between him and the European diplomats and rulers was immense. They were all dressed in highly elaborate military uniforms, aping the styles of Napoleon and the Marshals and the Tsars and the Grand Dukes. Castlereagh was dressed in a blue civilian coat with ruffled braid and bright scarlet breeches. He looked, as someone observed, like a dandy footman. This might have caused people to underestimate him. Now Castlereagh might have no European diplomatic experience, but he had plenty of political experience, including being instrumental, along with Lord Cornwallis of American War of Independence fame, in passing the Irish Act of Union, which had unified the Irish and English crowns. He and Metternich seemed to click instantly. Let others babble and think themselves clever. He and Metternich were going to put themselves in the driving seat. In a private meeting, he and Metternich decided the shape of Europe. They paused only briefly to let Castlereagh meet King Frederick, then went back to deciding how and where millions of people would live their lives. Well, I've just thrown a lot of information at you there. 
let's pause for a moment and think about the staggering implications. The way these men thought is very, very different from the modern idea of government of the people, by the people and for the people. It is very different from the American founding father's ideal of that phrase. It boils down to a concept that we will see throughout the Victorian period, namely that people did not have the right to decide the shape and state of their nation. Aristocrats and kings might have that right by treaty or war, but the idea that there was a popular will in Belgium and that the people living there should get to decide the form of their government, whether they were a monarchy or a republic, this was a deeply abhorrent idea to men like Metternich. This wasn't because he was evil, far from it. He wasn't sitting in a secret lair in a volcano, telling Mr Bond that the shark tank had been warmed up for him and he was welcome to take a dip. It was because Metternich believed in the old order of Europe and that it was preferable to the chaos that came from the ideas of equality, liberty and fraternity. Giving rule to the people would lead to chaos, and from chaos would come dictators like Napoleon, who would wage wars on an unprecedented scale with nothing to check their ambition. It was easy for such men to fool the common people because the common people were ignorant, idle, excitable, and jealous. Now, I should point out that this opinion of Metternich's was not universal even in his own time, but the claim that the majority of the populations of Europe were ignorant is not entirely wrong. It is more that it is incomplete and misleading. Most people in Europe were still illiterate and didn't travel much, so their worldview and knowledge was intensely local. They really were ignorant of a lot of the wider world. This was not because they were stupid, although many of the aristocracy would have said they were. Rather, it was inevitable, because universal education and a mass-market free press simply didn't exist in the way it would in the mid to late Victorian era. Knowledge was concentrated in the aristocracy and the tiny but growing middle classes. I think that if challenged, Metternich would have said something like, well, how is a peasant farmer who can't read and knows only the gossip from the tavern and the sermon in the church supposed to decide whether his government should adopt a trade treaty with a foreign power that required the surrender of territories and complex negotiations. It would be absurd to ask such a man, versed in the plough and the seasons, to give a considered and rational opinion on events that he can know nothing about and in which he has no training. This has been a long-standing criticism of democracy and remains part of the core debate about representative democracies versus direct democracies versus constitutional monarchies versus more despotic regimes. It is an argument that would burst into flames in the United Kingdom countless times during the Chartist movement, the passage of the Reform Bill, the Corn Laws, 
voting rights for women and many other flashpoints. The idea that universal mass education combined with scrupulous press honesty was the key to overcoming the problem was not widely recognised despite the efforts of some of the American founding fathers. The feeling that the people would become an excitable mob had been proved by the French Revolution as far as the European ruling classes were concerned. The reign of terror and the horrors of Robespierre and the White Terror were fresh in everyone's minds. The United States was still too new and too alien to look at as a valid counterexample, and the aggressive actions of the United States against Canada, which were one of the major triggers of the War of 1812, seemed to prove that democracies were inherently more warlike than the aristocracies. This worldview had also dominated Castlereagh's previous actions in Ireland, and would do so again with dire consequences. Castlereagh set out Britain's vision for the future of Europe. Metternich was in agreement. It jibed neatly with his own visions, and provided ample scope for the necessary wheeling and dealing to get an agreement. It also helped check some of the Tsar of Russia's increasingly imperious demands. At the least, Castlereagh wanted a strong Holland to counterbalance France, Antwerp to never be in French hands, the restoration of the Spanish and Portuguese monarchies, a strong kingdom of Italy that was free of French influence. In return, Britain would give up all the French colonies it had taken, except Malta, Mauritius, Reunion, Guadeloupe and the Saints Islands. It quite liked those. Britain would also return captured Dutch possessions, except the Cape. This would give Britain some of the absolute best naval bases around the world, especially when Ceylon was added, and significantly weaken the French. All in all, it would be a good end to the war for Britain, but it was certainly not pressing the advantage as hard as other powers like Germany, France or Prussia or Russia would have done if the shoe was on the other foot. Also, it would be incomplete to characterise everything Castlereagh did as being selfish or arrogant. His job was to represent Britain's best interests, and to do the best for her he could, not necessarily to help the French. Like Metternich, he was a reactionary, but only because he believed the old order was the best way of doing things for everyone. And this isn't entirely surprising. He was an Irish aristocrat from an old noble family. His worldview was shaped very much by his experience of growing up amongst the Irish nobility in Ireland. And this would have shaped his views of the rural population. He wasn't corrupt or bloodthirsty. His constant efforts were always aimed at making peace on the continent. He knew millions of people had died in decades of war and he wanted a better world. He just viewed that better world as coming from the past rather than arising 
from some kind of utopian reforms. One of the difficulties was that the British, uniquely amongst the European powers, didn't even recognise Napoleon as ruling France. They referred to him just as General Bonaparte. Metternich and many on the continent wanted a sensible peace, probably with France contained within her natural borders, rather than her smaller artificial ones that existed pre-revolution. Britain, though, was like Russia. She wanted Napoleon destroyed. Russia had already alarmed the British by suggesting the House of Bourbon shouldn't be restored to the French throne. Tsar Alexander felt that the Bourbon kings weren't of sufficient quality and perhaps the French throne should go to the ambitious French marshal, the treacherous Bernadotte. The marshal was keen to be made king, which was strange for a man who had revolutionary slogans tattooed on his skin. Ironically, he would indeed go on to be king, but not of France. Still, that's a story for another day. How on earth do you square these circles if you're a diplomat, though? It was a job of men like Metternich and Castlereagh to try. Many of the opposition in the military simply wanted to march into France, burning, looting and killing. They had lost much during French invasions and wanted revenge. The problem is, revenge becomes an endless cycle. You can always find a reason for revenge, for not making peace. There's always this outrage, or that battle, or this murder. Your side is always just a bit more in the right than the other side. The other side somehow aren't as honourable. They're terrorists, they kill people, whereas your soldiers. And you've sacrificed so much, so surely you should honour the fallen and carry on the war. What's that old saying of Batman's? If you kill a killer, the number of the killers in the world stays the same. It's why some conflicts in the world just keep going. Almost generation after generation, the past becomes the dead hand clamped on the neck of the future. Castlereagh and Metternich were desperate to break this cycle. And worse for them, Tsar Alexander was experiencing a religious mania. He believed he had been granted an intervention by God himself compelling him to destroy Napoleon personally. Fanaticism was rearing its head. Throughout 1814, the diplomatic whirlwind continued. The post-Napoleonic world was discussed. Princes and archdukes schemed. Metternich took mistresses, even at one point spending his time writing love letters to a less-than-constant mistress, whilst his colleagues planned how to carve up Saxony and Poland. When one of his former mistresses became a lover of Tsar Alexander, the gossip round the city caused enmity and jealousy to flare up between the two. Prussia schemed to acquire parts of Germany. Various Germans came up with opposing visions for Germany, some involving a grand unified Germany, others for increased power, to various German regions. Marriages and alliances were formed and reformed as needed. In many ways, it was the old order in full flower. Let's step back here though and look at this in a way at a bit more of an individual level. 
this whole situation was supposed to be about creating fair and lasting political and social settlement in Europe. The lives of millions of people depended utterly on the outcome of these discussions. But it is clear that at least some of the key statesmen involved were letting their personal feelings run riot, especially over mistresses, even if it damaged themselves and their countries. A lot of this took place with a backdrop of grand balls, great concerts, elaborate dinners and firework displays with extravagantly dressed servants and elaborate carriages. Great paintings have been made of these occasions and in many ways the Congress was more of a series of social events that were interrupted by occasional formal diplomacy. But what was going through their minds? What were these personal feelings? Why were they allowed to interfere so much? Was it a product of the culture of the aristocracies at the time? Were personal feelings and character as important to people as actual achievements? Talleyrand certainly didn't fall into the trap of mistresses distracting him, although he was aggrieved when one of his mistresses threw him over for a dashing cavalry officer. Or was it that being aristocrats, they didn't see the difference between the personal feeling and the public act? Was it a case of being just so self-entitled they simply didn't care, like many modern oligarchs and politicians? Or that they were living in a bubble that meant they simply couldn't see beyond their own lives except in the abstract? And what did their staff think? Was this ivory tower groupthink? Once his ex-mistress had firmly rebuffed him, Metternich did eventually return to business. Still, he retained a deep loathing for Tsar Alexander over the incident. And remember, these mistresses were powerful women, often duchesses or high-ranking aristocratic girls. They are often mentioned and even well-known in a way that modern pop stars are today. They seem to have enjoyed a notoriety that bordered on respectability. They clearly had enough power and agency to change relationships between powerful and dangerous men. I'm telling you this not just because it is interesting gossip, but because it is all too easy to oversimplify when we look at the historical lens. We say things like, Well, it's strange that the Russians didn't do X with the Austrians because it was really in their interest. And then we go on to talk in these abstract terms, as if a nation was a real thing with a single consciousness. The reality is far more complicated. Nations are basically a collection of impulses and culture tied together under a political system rooted in history. They aren't a conscious entity, and when we use terms like Britain or France, we must remember we are really just using a useful shorthand. Looked at this way, it is clear how some of the strange decisions made by nations can be explained once we root them in the mentality and actions of the individuals involved. Now, a lot of the tension between Austria and Russia 
was caused by Tsar Alexander and Metternich hating each other personally. Not that Talleyrand got on any better with the Tsar. The Tsar felt that Talleyrand was a dishonest backslider who quoted legitimacy and international law only as far as it suited him, which was entirely true. But Talleyrand was a smart political survivor. He was quick to play the Tsar off against everyone else. There's a great line in the Godfather novel about this. Michael Corleone is talking to his consigliere, Tom Hagen, and he says, quote, Tom, don't ever let anybody kid you. It's all personal. Every bit of business. Every piece of shit every man has to eat. Every day of his life is personal. They call it business. Okay, but it's personal as hell, end quote. It's a very revealing line. Throughout the book, one of the themes is, hey, it's not personal, it's just business. What Michael Corleone reveals in that line is a great truth. Power is often intensely personal, even if you dress it up. By calling it business, not personal, the Mafia could claim to be a step removed, more rational. But that was really just window dressing. It illustrates why the politics of this period really did come down as much to the feelings of the men involved because there simply isn't as sharp a distinction between the political and the personal as we claim. And these antics had not gone unnoticed. Many onlookers complained about the extravagance. One diarist wrote, quote, These sovereigns who were all brothers when it was a question of annihilating the power of Bonaparte were apparently united only by necessity, for their own interests and not in the noble aim they proclaimed of bringing happiness to the nations. End quote. In the background of all of this, a war ravaged Europe faced real questions about how to plant crops, raise cattle and feed itself generally. Armies had stolen food and burnt fields. Grain supplies and markets were disrupted. This was not trivial to a farmer or a peasant labourer. For them, the intensely local concerns of food production and supply meant that grand political diplomacy was something that happened in the abstract. Local politics was in many ways far more important and often trumped any nationalistic feelings. When Napoleon returned from exile, he threw the delicate balance of diplomacy in Europe into a tailspin. The great power players, represented by men like Metternich in Austria and Tsar Alexander, had a vision for the future. So did men like Talleyrand. This vision was in many ways backward-looking and very autocratic, but it did at least aim to bring peace to a continent that had been ravaged by 20 years of war. Still, in an unfortunate quirk of fate for Napoleon, the Duke of Wellington had replaced Lord Castlereagh at the Congress, and so he was already in place to work on the immediate military response. Napoleon's return had shattered the initial dreams of the Congress. The Coalition of the Willing was assembled. They had committed to bringing him down together. Once Waterloo was over, Napoleon's fall became inevitable. The question of what came next hung in the balance. 
Castlereagh had wanted to enact a vision of a peaceful Europe with a balance of power and a set of congresses almost running as a proto-United Nations. He was determined to avoid a punitive peace settlement with France that was so harsh it would create future conflict. He was desperately worried about allowing one continental power to gain dominance. What he seemed not to realise was that in setting up a balance of power system with the old regimes back in charge, he was guaranteeing that the old order would seek to turn the clock back, making future populist revolutions inevitable. Prussia wanted revenge more than ever. Russia aimed to replace France and Austria as the ultimate power in Europe, with Poland carved up between the various European powers. Still, Waterloo had changed things. The British, particularly Wellington, were now the supreme diplomatic power in Europe. In hindsight, we might say how instrumental the Prussians were in turning the tide, but to the powers at the time, Waterloo was Wellington's victory. In the populist myth of the day, he had stood alone against the best the French could offer and beaten them before the other powers could help. If you've listened to my previous episodes, you'll know that this isn't true, but it isn't entirely wrong either. It's just very incomplete. The Tsar realised he had to get to Wellington if he was to salvage his ideas of Russian dominance. Like many others, he wanted to see the Duc d'Orléans succeed Napoleon, but Wellington was known to be close friends with Louis XVIII. Wellington moved quickly to put Louis back on the throne. He summoned Talleyrand and Fouché. Talleyrand was quickly brought off with £10,000 from British Secret Service funds, or at least the forerunner of the Secret Service. Fouché was brought off when Wellington strong-armed Louis to accept Fouché into government. That might seem pretty appalling to us at first glance. The British were deciding on who would rule France and the shape of the European peace, but it should be noted that by pursuing Castlereagh's plans, the British were trying to put European affairs and interests before their own. By passing up a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity Napoleon and many others were stunned. They expected the British to ruthlessly carve up France, steal colonies, force concessions and gain immense commercial and financial benefits. But the British refused to take advantage. Almost every other European power gained immense territory and many other treasures. But Castlereagh wanted security, not revenge. He was genuinely having the courage of his convictions. Not that the British didn't behave badly in many ways. The British treated Napoleon appallingly in his exile. Wellington essentially allowed Marshal Ney to be executed after a show trial and difficulties at home meant that Castlereagh had trouble persuading Parliament to accept his various treaties, especially when they might involve Britain guaranteeing Russian power in the Balkans and Middle East and potentially provoke conflict with the Ottoman Empire. The Castlereagh settlement was for a quadruple alliance with regular congresses. 
but it was doomed as a mechanism for European peace. The British were turning inward now that the Napoleonic threat was over. For them, the alliances had been to prevent Britain and Ireland being invaded by the French, to bring down Napoleon and turn back the effects of the French Revolution. Castlereagh wanted a highly autocratic, grand system, where the great powers could meet and debate international affairs to prevent conflict and settle all disagreements by negotiation. But Britain's inward turn and worries over the financial and economic implications of the end of the war meant that they had little interest in further European affairs. For Russia, the alliances were just to help them gain power in Europe and enforce the will of the great powers on smaller states. Again, this wasn't because the Tsar was evil or the Russians were somehow bad. They were seeking to establish their own territories and role in a world that often didn't give Russia either diplomatic respect or deal with them consistently. But it caused immense resentment amongst those smaller satellite nations and states near Russia who felt insecure by Tsarist expansionism. For Austria, the goal was to prevent any liberal movements to create a stable patchwork of static European states. Eventually, the naked self-interest of the other powers meant Castlereagh began to refuse to attend the Congresses after 1815. He had worked so hard to secure the peace, but Britain was in turmoil at home, whilst the great powers regarded him as a stiff-necked idealist. There was no way the system of congresses could cope with the rapidly changing international affairs or deal with the pent-up liberal movement that was desperate for democracy, freedom, liberty, or at least minor political reform and food. The question to ask ourselves now is, was the Congress of Vienna a success? Well, that's actually quite complicated to answer. We have the benefit of hindsight, of course. It seems to have succeeded on its own terms in many ways. There was no major continental war for decades, but it couldn't re-establish the old regime or lay the foundations for a transition to the mass industrial democracies. Historian Pavel Merdzev says, quote, It served as a foundation that simultaneously managed a long-term balance of power failing to recognise the burgeoning spirit of nationalism that would ultimately upset the peace of Europe, end quote. The next few years would be very hard for Europe, and whilst Europe on the mainland attempted to turn the clock back, the British attempted to carry on as if the French Revolution had never happened. The ruling aristocracy wanted the old order to carry on, and they viewed the British political system as having demonstrably triumphed over any other in the world as demonstrated by their supreme triumph in the Napoleonic Wars. So, creating a land fit for heroes, for the returning soldiers, or reforming, tottering political system was the last thing on their minds. A dysfunctional monarchy and an utterly corrupt parliament that meant for many British, dark times were ahead. Join me next time, though, when nature herself will utterly change the course of history. Okay, thanks for listening today. I'm now going to get busy on the next show. Don't forget to take a minute to subscribe or leave a review on iTunes. 
or get in touch with me via email at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Catch me on Twitter at Age of Victoria or via Facebook if you've got any questions or if you just want to chat. Goodbye and I bid you adieu until next time.